Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is November the 14th. 2022. I had to check my watch to make sure that was the right date. I am in uh, Sonoma, Northern California. Uh, dates uh, for the Techonomy Conference. Uh, dates aren't so important for this crowd. There are a number of people who are somewhat apocalyptic, deeply pessimistic about the future of the world. And much of the conference has focused on the future of the planet. One man who's speaking at the conference who knows a thing or two about the environment and sustainability and the future of the planet is my guest today, uh, Lucas Joppa. He had been Chief Sustainability Officer at Microsoft up until the summer, and now he's jumped ship and he's um, uh, a Sustainability Officer uh, at a gaming studio, an investment company focused on gaming. Uh, Lucas, so... Are you pessimistic about the future of the planet? Well, I'm definitely not pessimistic about the future of the planet. Uh, I think there's reason to be nervous, uh, but I'm an inherently an optimistic person. I think that ultimately when you focus on issues of the environment, and particularly the way that the environment impacts our economy and vice versa, there's definitely reason for nervousness. There's reason for urgency, there's reason for action, but if you care about things like, and you get excited about things like economic growth and innovation, then I think there's a whole lot of reason for optimism as well. In the first session yesterday, Lucas, there was an interesting debate between those who see the responsibility of the environment falling to government versus those who don't think government's up to the task and increasingly it should be or is the responsibility of private for-profit companies like Microsoft where you spent some time. Where do you stand on that when it comes to uh, the responsibility for looking after the planet? Well, I don't think we have the privilege of splitting out who's in charge uh, at the moment. There's so much to do. There's so many organizations, so many institutions, so many people that need to be involved. I think we start creating a false dichotomy of saying, oh, government needs to lead, companies need to lead, individuals, behaviors change, consumers needs to lead. Everybody needs to be getting involved all at once. I think as we look around, there's not really clear sectoral leadership anywhere, unfortunately. They're shining examples, I believe, of what leadership looks like from a private organization's perspective, particularly if you look at a company like Microsoft, for instance. Um, but, you know, this conference, this Techonomy conference is taking place at the same time as COP27 in Egypt. I think all of the reports coming into that conference and then all the reports heading out of that conference show that governments are definitely not on track. The world is not on track. When you add up all of the nationally determined contributions, the basically the promises that countries make as part of their commitment to the Paris Climate Accord, they don't add up to two degrees Celsius. They definitely don't add up to one and a half degrees Celsius temperature uh, increase, keeping 
keeping our climate in check. Same with corporations. We've seen incredible progress. Well more than 2,500 companies in the world have committed to net zero outcomes now. But last time I checked, there's a whole lot more companies in the world than just 2,500. And so, sure, there are organizations, there are countries that are getting out there and getting after it, but we need everybody acting right now and literally you know, trying to pass the buck and say it's somebody else's job to lead, I think is the wrong strategy right now. You mentioned some of these international conferences, some younger environmentalists, one young Swedish woman particularly comes to mind, uh, talks about the blah, blah, blah of the international green community, particularly at the higher levels at uh, events like COP and uh, other UN organized events. What's your take on it? You're, you're not on the street, but you're not necessarily at, at the government level either. Do you share her frustration, her impatience with the actions of our governing elite when it comes to the environment? Well, there's no question there is a lot of talk. I think talk outweighs action by a significant majority. However, you can't let that kind of blind you to the fact that there is a lot of action underway. One of the reasons that I moved from Microsoft into the world of investments um, is because I came away from COP26 in Glasgow convinced that the money was starting to move. The investments were starting to be made. I think one thing that we can't forget is that these climate commitments are 2030 commitments, 2040, 2050 commitments. It's easy to become impatient. We should be impatient. We're well behind the clock on what needs to be done. On the other hand, we've got to give these innovations, we've got to give these investments, we've got to give these policies time to mature because it's going to unfortunately take that time for us to make any sort of dent in, in, the, um, in the efforts that we're making. Uh, Lucas, the focus of techonomy is the intersection of the environment, increasingly the intersection of the environment and technology. We've done many shows on Keen On about um, the role of technology and the role of capitalism and business. There seem to be two camps. On the one hand, there are people who believe that capitalism by its very nature is destroying the environment. A lot of left-leaning writers and journalists. Others see the way in which private companies can help to fix the environment with new technologies like wind and solar. You spend a lot of time at Microsoft. You push the company towards investing significantly more in the environment. I'm assuming that you believe that capitalism can help rather than hinder uh, the environmental crisis. Well, I don't think capitalism is this thing that everybody agrees on its exact definition or how it's executed and implemented. I believe that there are forms of capitalism that can be inherently destructive for our environment and ultimately for our economy. I also believe that there are forms of capitalism that can be inherently beneficial and help build a better world, a better society, a better lived experience for people all around the world. I believe that better version of capitalism is one that takes what's great about current systems and building innovation, driving investments into new technologies and new approaches, uh, an approach that you know, is risk tolerant, that is willing to get out there and get things wrong once in a while in order to achieve the big wins. I think that's all incredibly important. It's a type of capitalism that we need to continue to move towards. It's, it's a type of capitalism that I think Microsoft really embraced with its sustainability 
uh, commitments. It's a type of capitalism that we embrace at, at the new firm that, that I represent and work at called Haveli Investments, a, a digitally, digital technology-focused private equity company. And so I just think that there's a lot of change happening in capital, uh, in, in, in the definition of capitalism kind of as, as we speak. In other words, you applied, it was a rather dumb question. Well, it is a rather dumb question to make generalizations either for or against capitalism. What about tech, Lucas? What about the promise of wind and solar? Are, are these for real or are they more delusions or illusions, more blah, blah? Well, of course, wind, solar, they're definitely not blah, blah. They're powering at a lower cost basis per unit energy, a significant fraction of the world's grids, and that's growing every day. And that represents this incredible exponential increase in grid or market penetration and cost reduction over the past 20 years, faster than basically anybody's seen in technology. And so that stuff's happening. Now, there's a lot of technologies just like 30, 40 years ago when people were talking about renewable energies like, like solar and wind, there was a lot of pushback of saying, ah, oh, these aren't scalable, they're not cost effective, et cetera, et cetera. You're just taking our mind off of what we really need to do, which is to reduce emissions today. Well, 20, 30, 40 years ago, it's true. We did need to immediately start reducing emissions at that time, which we didn't do. But we also needed to invest in maturing these technologies, which we did do. And now, several decades later, the world has experienced a significant benefit from that focus on, on those technologies. I think as we look towards you know, a more 2030, 2040, 2050 version of what a net zero carbon economy is gonna look like. Well, basically every plan sees at its core a rapid decarbonization of the grid and then a race to electrify, digitize, and virtualize as much of our economy as we possibly can. And software is gonna run all of that. And so when you look at the convergence of technologies over the past couple decades, I think that they, fo that they kind of lead us towards a, um, a natural evolution of where the net zero carbon economy needs to go, but it requires you to kind of put your faith in a innovation trajectory that at a time when putting faith in anything um, on the, on the climate, in the climate space is, is, is hard to do. And decarbonization, that's the thing in itself. Carbon is the enemy. That's the thing we need to get rid of. Is that fair? Well, it's also the fundamental building block of life on Earth. And so I think that's one of the things that we have to understand is what we're trying to do is we're trying to account for and manage this incredibly abundant element that literally is what creates life. And that is something, you know, one of some of our biggest innovations have been, for instance, how we account for, monitor, record, and report things around our financial systems, things to do with money, something that we just made up. We now have to do this for something like carbon that we didn't make up, that exists naturally. So we need to understand a lot of the fundamentals of what we did from an accounting perspective for a unit of currency, dollars, and, and other forms of monetary exchange that are an entirely human construct and bring them over to something that is entirely a construct of nature. You talk about digital, there'll be skeptics watching and listening to this, Lucas, and think, how can this guy claim to represent 
progress and the environment and yet spent so much of his life in the digital community working for one of big tech's biggest tech companies, Microsoft. How would you respond to that critique? Well, I think that ultimately, again, what we look at where the net zero carbon trans transition is going to come from, it's going to be predicated on the same digital technologies that, quite frankly, most of our global economy is predicated upon today as well. And so when we talk about achieving a net zero carbon uh, economy, what we're talking about is fundamentally beginning to decouple the, the emissions of carbon into the atmosphere from economic growth. When you look at what the technology sector has been able to do, that is fundamentally the story of the past few decades. As we move a lot of the value of our economy from the analog to the digital, we start running that on the infrastructure of hyperscale cloud providers, consuming electricity, consuming increasingly large fractions of renewable electricity, and then converting that into human-derived economic growth, that's the best plan that anyone's come up with so far. And so, like it or not, the tech sector is where that's going to happen. You talked about digital, uh, you talked about carbon being both life and death. Isn't digital the same? We did a show recently about the environmental costs of cryptocurrency. Um, for all the idealistic notion of a, a decentered financial economy, the environmental costs are huge in actually producing this. Isn't that true of digital more broadly? Well, I think, you know, on crypto in particular, I think it's fundamentally all the, the efficiencies that you're looking at of how you run some of these, these exchanges or some of these, these blockchains, if you will. And it's really probably the most egregious example of energy uses in what people call... So you're not mourning the collapse of crypto, Lucas? Well, you know, I, I didn't wake up dreaming for the advent of crypto. I don't spend a lot of time, you know, uh, mourning it either. I would say that when you look at some of the most valuable ex uh, currencies in the crypto world today that are based fundamentally on proof of work, um, approaches. I would say that, you know, as somebody who has spent his entire career in technology, it's a little embarrassing that the most advanced technology and the most advanced financial system we claim to have been invented is predicated on a guess and check method that we were all taught to never use in introductory computer science classes. So here's a softball for you, Lucas. What did you do at Microsoft that you're proud of? You, you, um, you're one of the best-known young um, uh, sustainability officers at a large company, and uh, many people spoke highly of your achievements. What are you most proud of? You left this summer. I think, ultimately, it's that I was part of something at Microsoft that allowed them to decide to take action, decide to act, and to decide to act at an industry leadership level. So when I look at our carbon negative, water positive, zero waste, and planetary computer goals that Microsoft uh, put in place when I was there, those are industry leading. I hope that they don't remain industry leading. I hope everybody else uh, picks up and uh, the, their level of ambition and surpasses that. And this friendly competition of who can make the most significant pledges and then who can then follow on and make the most rapid progress against those pledges from a net zero perspective, from a climate perspective, from a sustainability perspective all up. That's what I'm most proud of at Microsoft and it's what I hope to take into, into my new role at, at Havelli Investments.
What about people who would just say with a company like Microsoft or any of these other big tech companies, people should just stop using their devices and that's ultimately the most beneficial thing for the environment. And that doesn't mean going back to living in caves or using candles for light. Well, I think, you know, devices increasingly, we talk about devices as if it's some sort of, you know, computer or tablet or phone, but ultimately from a technology perspective, almost everything moving forward is rapidly becoming a device, has some sort of digitization component to it. And so I think that talking about using or not using devices is probably more of like a social conversation and how we choose to spend our time with our devices in a virtual world than in an analog world with, with each other in, in real life than it is about the environmental aspects of what the technology sector is, is putting out there. I do think, of course, from a device, a hardware perspective, there's a long way to go for the industry and for the world to start building a truly circular economy and making sure that these devices are built um, for a repurposement and You believe and in the idea of a circular economy. I think that's one borrowed, a term borrowed from Kate Raworth. It's become quite a, a fashionable term. You believe in a a win-win in that sense. I mean, at some point, you have to respect the fact that we live on one planet. There's a finite amount of resources. And if you use them all up and you have no plan for how to reuse the materials that went into the first use phase, that's not a very sustainable plan from an environmental perspective, from an economic perspective, or from a sociological perspective. And so I do believe in some sense that we need to move towards a more circular economy. I think one of the things that I worry about from a circular economy perspective is where the circular economy is going to be activated is in contracts. And if you look at any diagram of a circular kind of economy, worldview, philosophy, et cetera, et cetera, you'll struggle to find the word contract anywhere in there, much less at the very center of it. But contracts, you know, specific requirements from a supplier or from a producer to for what happens next in the use phase and, and how that material gets reabsorbed back into their supply chain, when that starts to become the norm, that's when I think we'll finally start going from a lot of talk um, to, to a little bit more action on the circular economy. Well, we certainly need to go from the blah, blah to the real. You mentioned earlier, Lucas, that you left uh, Microsoft and joined Haveli, which uh, it was, it seems to be an, an investor in, in gaming studios or in gaming platforms. Um, I mean, we all have our careers. We all want to better ourselves. But how can you justify that in environmental terms? Surely from the environment's point of view, from the, the planetary point of view, having um, a, a committed, experienced, very competent environmentalist that, at Microsoft, uh, a Lucas Chopper, is much better for the planet than just joining another financial group making a lot of money. Sure. Well, I would say first and foremost, Haveli started with a gaming fund, but Haveli's investment thesis is larger than that. It's a digital technology platform, everything from gaming to enterprise software as a service or SaaS. So it's a digital technology private equity company. And the fundamental reason that I decided to move from Microsoft where, sure, you have a massive ship to help steer, a potentially massive impact, which we had and Microsoft will continue to have in my absence. It was really fundamentally one pushback that I consistently got when I was at Microsoft, which was, 
Well, sure, Microsoft can do it. But what does that mean for anybody else? The world isn't made up of millions of Microsofts. There's only a few companies that operate at that scale. My response was always twofold. First, it was to say, yes, but we have to first prove that a Microsoft can actually do it. Because if Microsoft can't do it, then the world's in trouble. And then if Microsoft can do it, we have to prove that that can be replicated. I got to a point at, in my career at Microsoft where I firmly, deeply believed and continue to believe that Microsoft is going to hit its carbon negative goals by 2030. And so that really got me thinking about what next and how do I prove that it's not just Microsoft that can do this? How do I prove that companies of all shapes and sizes, or at least all shapes and sizes in the sector that I know best, which is the technology sector, can follow in those footsteps? And so looking at a private equity business model where you get to work closely with a portfolio of companies from both a leadership and an operations perspective, that's fundamentally what I'm trying to do. My goal is to prove that it's not just Microsoft on that graph of companies that are capable of taking meaningful climate action. It's that companies all the way down the size and the revenue spectrum can as well. And then there's a second component of what I'm trying to do at Haveli and what Haveli Investments is trying to do as a firm. Because I think as a new firm, we have an opportunity that we can work towards that a lot of private equity companies simply can't. And that's to try to be a net zero firm from fund one. When you look at private equity, there's a lot of 2030, 2035, 2050 kind of ambitions. I think that we can get started today and we can start delivering from our uh, first And private time. equity, and you know this again better than I do, it doesn't always have the best of names, always in the business of making people unemployed, of turning profits. Can it be done within the private equity world, in the business model of private equity? Is that compatible with your goals as, a, as an environmentalist? If I didn't think it could be done, I wouldn't have made the career move that I did. The proof, though, is going to be when you come and you look at Haveli's portfolio five, six years from now when things have been moving along, and we'll see. I am committed to trying to make the answer to your question be a resounding yes. That's why I made the move. Because if we can't do that, then I believe that our kind of investment model that, that predicates a lot of our global economy is in trouble. I want to show that there's a better, different, and increasingly profitable way of doing business. Brave honesty from Lucas. We'll have you back on the show five years.